Welcome to Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. Adrian Fries and Trey Bailey invite you to join them on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as we participate in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. In this episode, Chris Hall is our guest. He is the founder of Always Learning Education, an organization dedicated to teaching, learning, and propagating the common arts. Chris has a BA in philosophy and an MAT in elementary education. He's been a classroom educator and administrator for 25 years, having served in public, independent, and classical schools. Along with his professional pedigree, he is a lifelong practitioner of several of the common arts profiled in his book, He lives on a small homestead farm in Central Virginia with his wife and three homeschooled sons. On this episode, we will specifically be discussing his book called The Common Arts Education, Renewing the Classical Tradition of Training the Hands, Head, and Heart. So Chris, I'd like to kick off our conversation with a quote uh, from a book that I know you're familiar with. The title is The Book of Three, and it's written by Lloyd Alexander. (laughs) And uh, my understanding um, is that this book is is generally uh, read by middle school boys, but I found it to be a book that you'd probably agree could be enjoyed by anyone uh, of any age. Uh, And when I first came across this book, I was really struck by the first line. And so I'd like to just read the opening line of the the first chapter and then see how this might... uh, be a good uh, way to kick off our conversation here. Uh, The chapter starts like this. Taryn wanted to make a sword, but Cole, charged with the practical side of his education, decided on horseshoes. So when I first read that, I was really struck by the first part of the sentence there and the phrase wanted to make a sword. It seems that there's so much packed into that one phrase that tells us uh, a lot about this main character, as we're first being introduced to him. And I just wonder, from your perspective, what do you Indeed think? Indeed, it does. Well, well, tell me, what do you think Alexander uh, is up to here in terms of the story? And then how might we relate this well, to something that, um, you know, may, may, may be in the context of a common arts education? <laughs> well, first off, oh, Lloyd Alexander drew... Uh, most of the names, even some of the places and some of the concepts from that book, from the Mabinogion, which is an accumulation of Welsh folklore. I don't know if, if you knew the backstory behind this. And no. uh, it just just recently, I've been reading I've been reading the Mabinogion because I wanted to go back and see from where he drew these names and these places and what were the backstories behind Alexander's story. Mm. And it's a it's a wonderful little set of tales, and you see these echoes. Of, of, of the classical tradition that have made their way into Wales and even into these folk tales as we go. But I can tell you that having taught middle school, especially middle school boys for more than two decades, there's more in that first half of that first sentence before the comma than many of us know. Um, the middle school boy, most of them want to make a sword for sure. 
<laughs> but they want to charge forward in the same way with making the sword as they do with just about everything else. And that's the beauty of the adventure in the middle school boy. And by the way, I'm not leaving the girls out of this by any stretch or younger or older uh, kids. This is, this is an essence statement right there. He wanted to make a sword. And <laughs> starting with horseshoes is the most prudent way to get to the sword because it forces two things. First is a deep and abiding understanding of metal, heat, tools, and other things required to make the sword. The sword is a high art. The, the horseshoe is a, a, a lesser study, perhaps, in metallurgy. But the second thing is, as we temper the shoe, as we will again temper the blade, we temper the person making the shoe and temper the person making the blade. What we make also makes us, and how we make it also makes us. And this, I think, is a lot of why Cole is the older, wiser, balder, stouter man having walked these experiences, may put Taryn through those kind of paces before. And let us not forget, too, that Taryn is an assistant pig keeper. He feels the loneliness of his status, and he wants to be more. And he sees the sword as the way to get it. But we all know where that leads eventually. Cole is being very wise here, not just as a father figure, but also as a craft person in material as well as human beings. Mm, mm. Ooh, I, I, I want to jump in a little here. Um... I love I love getting the background on this book. I'm ashamed to say I've never read it, but I've had so many people tell me I would love it and I need to read it. And I have one friend who's like, I read it every year. It's such a great book. And I, there's so many great books. <laughs> um, I want to, I want to kind of, before we dive into, Trey has a lot more great questions I think are really important, but I also like to set off the, the beginning of a conversation um, as we should in classical education and defining things. So, so that our yes. listeners kind of know a little more of the trajectory we're going on, understand the terms we're using. And um, one, one thing, one way to go there is, you know, the title of your book, which, what's, what exactly is the title of your book again? The Common Arts? Common Arts Education, Renewing the Classical Tradition of Training the Head, head uh, Hands, Head, and Heart. Love it. I love it. And um, <clears throat> I recently saw um, Angel Parham a professor up at the University of Virginia uh, say on our Facebook page, I thought she said something very wise and I've, I think we need to talk about it. She says, we always need a balance between applied practical work and the liberal arts. And I think if we can define for our, our listeners, what, what does she mean by applied practical work and the liberal arts? And then I know we're gonna get into how does that balance? Um, how does that give us a balanced education to do all three? So could, could you go ahead and define yes, all of yes. those for us? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, let, let me start first with what are the common arts, right? Being the, the, the center of the title of the book. And I think from that, that's a, kind of an axle upon which I can draw some spokes out to connect to the rim, mm -hmm. right? Of all the other things that surround this, what Angel's driving at and, and others. Um, the way I, I actually will, I'll quote the book here. This is the, the first two paragraphs of chapter two. Common arts are the skills that provide for basic human needs through the creation of artifacts or the provision of services. We need to eat, drink, build shelters, defend ourselves, bargain with others, maintain our health, work raw materials into various forms, and repair artifacts that are broken. The common arts run the gamut of skills necessary to meet those needs. Now, while we are making those, as Taryn might learn with Cole in the Forge, we're applying these things that for many students today end up being kind of abstract in the classroom. Uh, for example, to... to uh, 
to do a number of these arts requires some arithmetic, it requires some geometry, which you knew are the, are the basis of the arts of mathematics. It requires grammar in the fact that we have to read, <laughs> we have to understand and define our terms like we're getting at right now. We need logic. We need to be able to have dialectic with people and discuss our craft to learn from others, to, to share what we know. And of course, the skills of rhetoric are involved in that too. They're the arts of language. So I think what, what Dr. Parham is driving at there, and it's a, it's a point that I resonate with, uh, with her very much so, is that our educations cannot stay in the abstract and our liberal arts education cannot remain in papers and articles and debates that are in class, but never enter permeate really the real fabric of the lives around us. And I think the common arts are one of those ways to make the liberal arts manifest in the world in ways, A, that are unexpected to a lot of people today. They don't realize what goes into these arts. Uh, but B, they root us in, as, as uh, Milton put it, in Of Education, uh, gain such a tincture of natural knowledge that they shall daily augment with, with delight, right? These are things that will take the arts of the classroom and put them in the hands and out through the hands, ultimately, to serve not only our basic embodied needs. We all need to eat. We all need to, to be safe. We all need to be sheltered. But we can do this in the service of others as well. And in so doing, these arts are not confined to ourselves. We're taking our understandings now of applied liberal arts and common arts and bringing them to our communities. It moves outside of just the needs of our family. And we can now balance by each of us having a variety of these skills, but some of us becoming experts and others really have a, a, whole, a holistic community that supports, sustains, grows, and thrives, right? This is more than just the arts of survival. I, I say in the book, these are the arts of thrival. They're the way to make us very healthy. We're, we're limited in the world by our embodiment, but we can take that in such directions that it, it can become good, true, and, and beauty manifest. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love that. And what I'm hearing, and I think is spot on to the renewal of classical education in our age right now is that we don't really want to repeat what was done in the Middle Ages. I was recently reading Hugh St. Victor <laughs> and how yes. the theoretical, the practical, the mechanical, and the logical were all different divisions of education. And, and they, the, the logical is where kind of the um, liberal arts rest, and it was for the man of leisure. And the mechanical, the human labor, was for the, the, the workers yes. that didn't have the money and the common man. And so what we're, what we're aiming for is a balance of being a human being and getting the best of both worlds, I think I hear you saying. Yes. Yeah. And I also, in that, in that phrase, what I hear is the echo of the body of Christ. This is straight out of scripture. Not all of us are the eyes, not all of us are the feet. We have these different talents. We should all be acquainted with the other parts of the body. And right. we should know that the feet are useful, right? This is the, the first step, perhaps, of common arts is learning how to respect the janitor, right? This, this person who seems to do lowly work, but without it, we would all kind of fall apart. This would be, this would be difficult. Um, but it's also just becoming familiar with um, the the non-division of those labors. Hugh of St. Vicar wrote the Didascalicon, and in fact, he was writing into essentially the curriculum, the, the way of life at mm -hmm. uh, St. Vicar, uh, uh, how to restore capital W wisdom. And I'm going to borrow from, from Brian Williams, Dr. Brian Williams on this one of Eastern University, mm -hmm. uh, having presented with him before he knows Hugh of St. Vicar's Didascalicon very well. And he says that all of these people in those divisions have lowercase w wisdoms. And what we need to do is take all of our lowercase w wisdoms, get the people talking so we develop an understanding and appreciation of capital W wisdom, the grand order that underlies all of these. Right. And uh, it, it, essentially, Hugh St. Victor is in a restorative project, very much like 
our current renewal in classical education. Here we yep. are. I agree. I agree. That's great. All right, Trey, I know you have a million more questions. You keep going. <laughs> well, just listening, just listening to the, the, uh, the conversation here and thinking about balance, <clears throat> I'm, I'm trying to recall, and I wish I had the text in front of me, I'm trying to recall something that um, I believe is uh, Jacques, uh, Jacques Barzin said in, in one of his essays, and uh, it was about the teaching of history. And he, he has this critique of this, this notion of, quote-unquote, bringing history alive through um, sort of a, an overabundance of um, hands-on activities and um, even sort of, um, you know, thinking that the study of history has to be sort of experienced away from, away from a book, Right. And so in, in, the, uh, in the desire for, for balance, I think one can rightly look at a lot of practices in contemporary education and see, uh, see teachers who are, um, you know, trying to um, fill their classroom with these sorts of activities. And perhaps what is lost is the, the skill of learning to, to read and learning to narrate and learning to uh, to talk about uh, what they what what they're what they're reading from these from these historians. In other words, learning how yes. to be a historian. And yes. so, I just yes. wonder if you could speak to that because you're someone who rightly advocates for doing things with our hands. And I think we'll spend a lot of time in this conversation talking about the importance of that. Um, but I wonder if you could address the other side of the the pendulum swing, so to speak. Absolutely, and gladly, because one of the grand challenges I face and one of the key, I think, criticisms that comes out of people with regards to common arts, if all we're ever doing are the arts of the hands, we neglect these other things. And let me put it forth right now that my advocacy for the common arts isn't to replace. Rather, it's to think about these things as overlayers, like, a, like transparency is on an old overhead projector. And I'm immediately dating myself by mentioning that piece of technology, right? Many a young teacher, well, overhead projector, what's that? It was this wonderful device. It was a wonderful piece of wireless tech we used to use in the classroom where you had these thin sheets of, of acetate. You could write on them with a marker and you'd put them on top of this device that would shine a light up and through them through a lens and project them on the wall, right? This is before the days of LCD projectors hooked up to your computer and whatnot. This was all very analog. But the neat thing about transparencies was if you took one transparency and wrote on it, and you took another transparency and wrote on that one, and you overlayered the two, the light came through both, and you could see both transparencies projected up on the screen. As an old biology teacher, I used to use this to layer on the parts of a cell. I'd start with the plant cell wall on the outside, and then I put down a layer that included the nucleus and the nucleolus, and then the Golgi bodies and the others, and we'd build a cell right there on this overhead projector. And this is a, a, an image that I want educators to hold on to, to do the common arts in history but to do nothing but the common arts and history and say, hey, let's live this history. Let's do everything through the lens of common arts is to neglect the arts of historian. But to do only the arts of the historian with never actually trying to put yourself inside the mind, heart, and hands of the person who lived it, that is equally off the, off the rails. 
preservation, if you will. It's, it's equally out of the bounds. And I think a strong balance between these, let us remember that liberal arts are the axle upon which we turn these educations in Christian classical education. I'm not advocating for a replacement of that axle, not, not at all. But what I do suggest is adding spokes to support the understanding of the rim on the outside. If all of our spokes are simply facts, figures, dates, and the arts of memory, then that history won't be as real as it could be if occasionally we slid in there an activity or two where they tried to card wool or they attempted to, to weave or they attempted to eat some, cook some food that was period worthy or, hey, we have a tactical situation that we need to go through. I once made an art of, an, a history lesson very alive by making one group of sixth graders uh, be a Roman legion marching through the Tudorburger forest. And meanwhile, the third graders were given tennis balls and they were they were the, the troops of, of the, uh, the Germanic tribes who ambushed them halfway across campus unexpectedly. And of course, we have to try and form ranks and go. It made that lesson more alive than it ever could have been if I had just told the tale in class. And so let's not lose the arts that make the liberal arts in the doing of the common arts. Rather, let's layer them like transparencies, rightly ordered, deeply understood in such ways that our kids gain that tincture of natural knowledge that will make their history more alive and not just a collection of names, dates, and places. And by the way, too, with all of this, let me, let me circle back on this. I, in, in the book, I describe the common arts and the liberal arts as a Mobius band, this band where if you trace your finger along one side, you end up on the inside, and if you keep tracing without picking your finger up, you end up on the outside. It's a one-sided figure, even though you can clearly see two sides. It's a paradox of mathematics, but I think it's a wonder of education, because if our liberal arts never trace around to the common arts, we'll lose the embodied nature of it. The understanding of, of the other human beings in history and time were embodied like us. And if we never use the liberal arts in the common arts, if we never, for example, look at the common art of trade through the lens of the historian, or we never look at navigation through the lens of the historian and what was known that way, we'll lose the essence of those arts as well. Right. It's almost, they almost become uh, pagan and earthly in their own. They're never instaurated by a certain mm -hmm. uh, baptism and a kind of knowledge. So as we think about these, it, I think of them as layering transparencies and circling from one to another. We don't have to do one at the exclusion of the other, nor should we. But rather, we can add to, augment, and, and bolster the understanding of both by doing them in concert. This is 100% accurate. I mean, I, Aristotle listed several virtues. I, I want to say it's been a while since I've read it, like five uh, key virtues. But the, the first three, uh, which I think were even more key to start with, were um, the virtue of the intellect, the virtue of the mind, and the virtue of the moral virtues. Mm. And I, I, I often grieve when I hear attempts at defining a classical education because they they often in their definition they will talk about the intellectual and moral virtues but they leave out the physical virtue and i think the, yes. the work you're doing is super important because bringing that third virtue the physical virtue in is it really does make us be wholly human the way we're supposed to be we are supposed to interact physically with the world around us so we can develop the right ordered relationships with everything around us. I love what you're saying. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's great. And we really, really need this to be emphasized in the, the renewal right now. Thank you. I, I would tell you, and I'll, I'll put this forth too. When Clark and Jane wrote the liberal arts tradition, mm -hmm. 
-hmm. You'll notice that at the beginning of that, before they get to all the other arts, they had gymnastic and, and a musical education. Gymnastic is the rooting of the education in the physical. It's in the movement. It's in the, the things we think of, of the gym. And then, That's of course, right. musical is this poetic understanding, a poetic dimension. And I think both of those are very well served by the common arts, then feeding the liberal arts and vice versa. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I agree 100%. And they are one of the few books, few of the modern classical education books that I strongly recommend reading. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I wonder if we could think about the lives of students and really the lives of families and how those lives contribute to what is then brought to the, the table, brought to the conversation, uh, brought to the classroom. Uh, I can think of so many stories in which um, it was clear to me at some point along the course of a lesson that my students were missing some key ingredient that had to do with their experiences with the natural world. Um, one of those stories uh, has to do with teaching uh, the Odyssey. And I was right at that moment where, well, much of the Odyssey is spent on the sea, right? And I was, I was at this moment where yes. Odysseus is, is fighting for his life, right? He's being tossed to and fro uh, by Poseidon on the sea and uh, knocked off his raft. And, and, and there's, a, there's a real fear of drowning and whether or not he'll make it to land, right? And I just could tell just by the, the, the looks on the students' faces that they weren't feeling the, the, the visceral reality of what, what Odysseus was experiencing um, just through the text <laughs> alone. And so I just asked for a quick show of hands. And I was, I was surprised to, to find out that um, a very small number of them had ever been on an open body of water. Most of them had been to the beach, yes. but very few of them had ever been out on the sea. Uh, even uh, fewer than I expected had been in the middle of a lake. Mm -hmm. And and so uh, what you've got is, um, you know, understandably, I mean, you know, uh, people who live by the water are going to tell stories about the sea, right? So the Greeks, understandably, are going to talk about the sea. People who live in the mountains are going to tell stories about the mountains. And I just wonder in terms of, um, in terms of reading um, any book, really, but specifically, let's think about reading the great books. Do you see a connection between a student's experience with the natural world and their ability to more fully enter into and connect with, with these stories? Absolutely. And in fact, let's start that one with the greatest book, the Bible. How many of the parables in the New Testament are rooted in the common art of agriculture? Mm -hmm. Can you understand the parable of the sower without having ever sown seed? Do you understand what it's like to have your crops choked off by thorns or picked by birds? Do you understand what it means to train a vine in a vineyard? Have you ever grown grain and harvested? Remember, there was a, a passage there where Jesus and the disciples are coming along and they walk through a grain field and they pick the remnants of the harvest, the things that were left on the tops, the stalks. And people came along and said, hey, 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 stop. And you realize that was, that was actually law at the time. People could go through and pick the remnants of the crop afterwards. It was a form of charity in a way. And here were the disciples. But how many people have walked through a field of barley and might know that there would be heads left? What is a head? What's a head on barley? Does, does it look like mine? Is this, what, what's going on here? So I go to the greatest story, actually, of, for all of these, the greatest book, and look at that and think, if we have no understanding of common arts in a way, even scripture will escape us. To a certain, we will not have eyes to see and ears to hear, if you will, and sometimes hands to work. Mm -hmm. um, I often think too about the education of Christ Himself. He would have gotten up in the morning, 
and done the, the morning, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, tinkered around the house and gotten things. Then he would have been apprenticed in a carpenter shop. Right. He would have had to go across and measure a right angle. And he would have had tools of, of straight lines and, and angles and ropes with pendulum bobs to count, you know, a number of these pieces that are applied mathematics. This is arithmetic and geometry. Mm. Even, the, even the education of our Lord in his early days would have had this. So to go from the greatest book to the great books, think about the kinds of experiences that we would want to have in even by late middle school, let's say, so that by the time they get to upper school children, we would want to have them go camping for a night or two and to experience what it's like to be out in the woods at dark, to be on a boat somewhere, like you say, either on a, bo a large body of water like a lake or the, the ocean, and even yet, better yet, to have jumped off that boat and gone for a 100-yard swim in mm -hmm, water right. they can't touch the ground in, yes. right? It's like, ah, well, that will lend you a little flavor of what it was like to have to make this landing. Those are the kind of experiences that I've actually started compiling a little list, and I started with Scripture, and I'm moving out from there. What were the things that maybe our kids should experience in order to be able to grasp these? And what if these experiences were actually done, as I just said a moment ago, let's not lose the art of the historian in doing all the common arts, but what if these were the little pieces that made their way into your history unit so that you might understand those? I don't mean, you know, drown-proofing your kids to read the Odyssey or, you know, maybe, hey, let's strap ourselves to the bottoms of sheep and try to get out of this cave. No, maybe, maybe not that, but, but perhaps... Perhaps an understanding of what it takes to make a fire, because that was something that was a challenge to Odysseus and his men. Okay, what do you have to do with wet wood? That's that's not easy. And a lot of these, by the way, I'll, I'll stop talking at this point. I could go on, but um, these are the basic common arts. In the back of the book, I refer to these as the common arts before the common arts. Before you get into the higher craft, these are just encounters with created realities. Uh, they're encounters with the basics of living in an embodied world that involves food and involves bodies and water and making fire. Um, and so sometimes these basic common arts are the best ones to do up through maybe eighth grade mm -hmm. and then say, OK, now you have the understandings that will lead us to to this book. I, th I think that what you're saying is exactly why so many homeschoolers are drawn to Charlotte Mason, because I don't know if you're yes. familiar with Charlotte Mason, but this is what she her whole philosophy embodies this for especially K-8. Um, and, um, you know, just to share a little bit of, and I'd like to hear Trey and, and, and you, Chris, give some examples of growing up. I think it's it's beneficial. I mean, I'm a lot older than a lot of our listeners. And I grew up, oh, I grew up with transparencies and reel to reel projectors like you. <laughs> yep. And then, but I also grew up in a, an era where like my dad was very involved in my life. He was a blue collar worker. He worked 60 hours a week, but my dad loved to go fishing and we never had the money to go on vacation. So we would go uh, every October, we would go camping in Altoona, Pennsylvania. And uh -huh. I, 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 you know, so I got to experience camping. I got to experience swimming in a lake. I mean, I, did, I never even swam in a swimming pool probably till I was, well, Maybe like if I visited a friend that lived in an apartment complex, I would swim in a swimming pool. But we had yearly passes at the lake. Um, we swam when yes. it was 60 yes. degrees outside in Ohio, 60 degrees. Oh, whoa, we're going <laughs> to yep. wear shorts and go swimming. And, you know, <laughs> and I, my dad took me fishing. and I loved fishing. I remember getting a fishing pole for my birthday when I was six. And I loved my fishing pole. And my dad would take me fishing out, out on the boat at Lake Erie. And we would catch the fish, uh, walleye, and we would go home 
and we, my dad would fillet the fish and showed me exactly how to, to do it. And then my dad cooked the fish and we had the fish for dinner. And there's something yes. about this. And this is something that I feel like this is a really important podcast for parents because schools don't have the time to do all of this. If you're sending your kids to a classical school, and I do want to find out, Chris, yes. what your thoughts are on how, how do we help headmasters incorporate some of this for one, one thing. Um, I usually just encourage nature study because it's the easiest thing to fit in and, and it's a great science curriculum. Um, but often teachers will want to still make nature study a, a list of checklists of things to do rather than let's go out and look at the clouds <laughs> today because there's some beautiful clouds yes. outside. You know, and so, oh, it's day three, we're going to look at clouds. Oh, too bad there's none in the sky. Why don't you just actually notice when the sky is good to study and go take the kids out instead of follow a lesson plan, uh, right? So there, yes. but like, so the practical, how do we help teachers and headmasters bring in how they can do this. I used to have shop class. When I was in uh, seventh grade, I took metal class and woodworking class. Those are gone. And I was in public school. And I then, remember yeah. having fun and, with yeah. it. It was a blast. And sewing. And I took sewing. We all took sewing. Uh, home, yes. home ec. We all took shop class. And so, I mean, can we bring those back? I know schools don't have a, a lot of money, but maybe we need some people who can help fund these in some of these classical schools and bring it back and get parents to sign permission slips that they can take wood class. You know, we're so caught up in this <laughs> protection of our kids that we're not letting them do the dangerous things. And Trey has some great stories on his wood chopping. But I, I just feel a real yes. passion that we need to have this conversation deeply and we really need headmasters, teachers to figure out a way to make this happen, but we also really need parents to listen and say, okay, I know they can't do this at school, but I'm going to make the time to make sure we experience something in our family. When, when I took my boys, this, we started homeschooling five years ago. We came late to the game. My boys always followed me to the brick and mortar schools I was working in. And when we started homeschooling five years ago, one of the very first things I said to them is, okay, hey boys, you've been used to going to school between 8.30 in the morning and 4 o'clock in the afternoon. School is now 24-7, 365, because that's learning. That's really what learning is about. And so one of the grand challenges I think we face as a, as a culture right now, because industrialized forms of education have been with us now for many generations, is the checklist mentality. You mentioned the checklist of skills, even on nature study. It robs it of a certain uh, of a certain understanding of what nature study really is. It's not about checking off the things you've seen. It's about becoming of the aware of the things you could see and therefore seeing more, right? Because now you know what to look for. And um, actually, I would, I would want a chemist and a physicist to be trained that way too, but that's another, that's a whole nother podcast mm -hmm. in their own mm -hmm. way. Um, the way that we're, you're talking about shop class was my experience too, but I'll tell you, I learned more of the common arts outside of school. Shop class was a time for us to practice some of these arts we were learning actually in mathematics. Uh, it was calculation and measurement and other things. Uh, but at home, my mother canned food and we, she made her own clothes. She was a hospital administrator, but she sewed yep. most of her own dresses. My, my, my mom was did too. Investing. Yeah. Was one of the, yeah. And this is yeah. a, this is a generational thing for us. Uh, we're, we're, we're close enough in age. This was a generation for us. Uh, but today's generation, we don't have those. We have outsourced all of those things mm -hmm. to supply chains and other pieces. And we've instead, instead, we've moved the sewing machines and the shop tools from our basements and built home theaters. We're now more into the, the entertainment end of things. If I can make a very generalized statement that could certainly be picked apart, I would make that one because having friends in construction and I ask them how it goes, these are the houses they're building. 
-hmm. And I look at that and I think, okay, so this 24-7, 365 mentality for Ed is where headmasters can meet their families. And we know in Christian classical education that unless your families are on board with the entire uh, telos of your mission and the ethos of your mission, we do a lot, we spend a lot of time on parent education for this, then we're not gonna get as far in classical education as we could. Mm -hmm. If we teach them between the classical model between 8.30 and four in the afternoon, then they go home and it's you know pop music and Ikea. They're not gonna take in all the beauties that come into this in the home. And so the best advice I could offer anyone on this is saturate. Saturate your homes with common arts. How do you do this? Don't make a rave of pizza, make dough and, and make pizza at home. Get your kids involved in cooking. Uh, cooking is not heating something up for a minute. It's not just boiling a pot of vegetables that came. Go cooking, like get ingredients and take the time. And by the way, while you're in the kitchen enjoying that, have conversation. People forget that around the common arts for, for millennia, were the best conversations of all. When I'm working with my, my boys here at home in the gardens, we have conversations about life and music and everything else in between. And it, it's a wonderful thing. Um, maybe just get, the, get kids to have chores at home. Talk about the basic common arts. Who cleans your house? That's great. Do the kids, are the kids in charge of cleaning their own rooms, their own bathroom? Like, take some ownership here. And you have, by the way, a role in the family that's beyond simply consumer. <laughs> you, you now, child, are taking yeah. part in the fullness of the activity of your home and yeah. your family. What does a family mean? It's not just I provide for you, it's we all provide for each other. That's and right. again, let's root back to the notions that are in the great books the, and the greatest book, right? This is what, this is what we're being asked to do. Uh, the Holy Family, it, it wasn't you know, what Joseph was the patriarch, Mary was the matriarch, Jesus was was our Lord and Savior, but he still was subject to them, you know, for a time. And they went looking for him and got angry with him when they found him in the temple. And these are all orders that we can we can we can look into in our own families and say, gosh, what do we do around the house? Who's owning mm -hmm. all this? Right. Kids, you need chores from the earliest ages. Right. As soon as you can pick up laundry, you should learn how to put it in the hamper and then take it to wash. And yep, you know, let's, exact, let's start there. That's exactly break, how break I, ra yep. in, I raised yeah. my I raised my kids that way. And then, for a time, we owned a cleaning yep. business. And I was my me and my kids. My kids were being homeschooled. We went and got paid to clean the houses of other homeschoolers who were doing so much academia. <laughs> That yeah. they didn't have time to do their chores. And that's yeah. another point, Chris. We need to get a message out to the headmasters of these schools that support this concept to not give so much homework so that they can mm -hmm. go home and have the time to make the pizza dough yes. from scratch. Yeah, can I can I riff on that for just a second? Yeah, right. We had um, some great discussions when when I was the ac I was the academic dean of a school that was uh, I suppose partially classical, uh, Christian liberal arts and sciences, and we I, I'm classicals in my heart. The school was moving that way, but they didn't go all the way. And one of the things that I talked to my math teachers in particular about was the length of their homework. Rather than do one through thirty one odd. Give no more than six problems. Right. Three of them a review, two of them are stretchers, and one should be a word problem. And Got that's it. all the homework those kids need. In that, in those six problems, you can evaluate whether they know this concept or not. You have all the data you need. And hey, this is a win for you as well. Your grading just got cut down, and you know what your kids are doing. They don't have, and now they have time for other things. The other one, another bugaboo, everybody, is athletics. By the time we get to high school, kids are, are doing all this work in school. They go all this work on the field. They come home, they do their homework, they go to bed. And so let's rethink the way that we balance 
these aspects of our existence, not just to get a college scholarship, but to live well. When we graduate, we are launching into a life. We're not launching into college. And so let's think beyond the goalposts of those larger pieces of paper. They go from one diploma to a larger one, maybe to another one in grad school. But really, we're making people who are to live well in the world. And to do this, we've got to think outside the paper alone and think outside the boundaries of the work we assign. That's my mm-hmm. soapbox, and I'm sticking to it. I love it. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And and I know uh, just in my conversations with Adrian that she is a huge advocate of everything that you just described. And as as a as a father with uh, three children, all under the ages of five, uh, I, I think <laughs> a lot. You. Thank you. Gosh, please pray for me. I think a lot about <laughs> about um, you know uh, how my children are spending their time and their relationship with uh, with uh, their grandparents. And um, uh, we're blessed to have yes. um, my grandmother uh, living next door. And one thing that I found to be just um, a real blessing in our household is I can have um, I can have my son, who is four years old, go over to his great grandmother's house, and I, over the Christmas <laughs> break, he. This is no exaggeration. I'm not saying this to impress anyone, but rather to just impress upon people that this is doable. Right? You can make this happen in your life. And if if you don't have Nana next door. Find some older lady at church because they're out there. Um, (laughs) My son went over and over the Christmas break, this is no exaggeration, made over 20 pound cakes with his great grandmother. (laughs) And he was just fascinated by it. And he he knows the recipe by heart now, right? He's four. And he's four. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so so yep. these sort of things just really, really delight me. And you know, it 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 freed up my time and my wife's time um to attend to other things uh that, that go into the running of our household. And I think this is one of the things that that stresses uh the, the modern man, which I am as modern as the next guy. Uh and that is that um there are uh, so many things that have changed in terms of the economy of the household that yes. some of these things no longer strike us as necessary, right? Because we don't really have to snap peas, right? We don't yes. have to peel our own apples. I mean, shoot, you can, you can go to the grocery store and buy peeled apple slices. <laughs> right. Yeah, pre-cut. So, so it seems like, okay, well, you know, it's not a necessity. But I can tell you that, you know, if, if, you, in, if you invite... Um, an older person into your home and you put a fire in the fireplace and you sit around with a, with a basket of apples and you peel apples and then you bake a pie, <laughs> you, you're just not going to get anything better than that in terms of good conversation, time well spent. And, and you know, uh, when you first start doing stuff like that, you know, the kids are, the kids are, are not going to know exactly how to, you know, it's like when you start a, a family prayer practice, right? The kids are, are not really looped in because they haven't developed those habits. But I would just yes. encourage people to keep it up. And and I'm sure you can, you can testify to this as well, because I doubt that when you first started with your homestead, that the whole family just like turned into Little House on the Prairie the next day. Is that fair to say? <laughs> <laughs> um, that is uh, quite fair to say. And I mean that, I say that both for the kids and for me, because I had mm. to learn how to run that. Uh, and we need to be we need to be kind as adults. And I, I tell the story in the book about um, a certain potato planting session that went horribly awry, and it was all my fault, 
right? I, I expected too much in too little time under horrible circumstances and conditions. And, I, you know, free, I, I, I repent of it, right? <laughs> I make my public confession that I was a horrible dad that day. But I also learned some important lessons in the thing about how to do this. And it, I, I talk about this in the book about how do you set up a paideia, right? Mm -hmm. Paideia is an inheritance. You're not just passing along information. You're passing along formation. You're forming a generation. And uh, Trey, what you mentioned there about your youngest, your young child going next door to do these pound cakes mm -hmm. reminded me of something that Chesterton once said, too, about doors. He said, you know, a, a, middle, a younger child, maybe a middle school child opens the door, and I'm horribly paraphrasing here, and is surprised to find a dragon. A four-year-old opens a door and is surprised to open a door. The miracle of turning flour, butter, sugar, and other things into a cake when you're four is like, you can do that? Oh, my gosh, this is awesome. What else could happen? That's the key. That's the longing for the sea that St. Exupery talks about. You don't give them plans to make a ship. You teach them to long for the sea. And when that happens, all of a sudden, it's like, ah, here we go, man. And the, the fire is lit. And oftentimes, that will sustain itself under its own ambition, its own drive, its own rightly ordered pursuit of things because it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it. Let's let's not forget, parents, we're in a learning curve for this stuff as much as our kids are. I didn't grow up in a homesteading house, but I live in one now. And I'm not advocating everyone go out there and, you know, go, uh, uh, you know, commando prepper out in the woods. But mm -hmm. the way we live, we're, we're growing a lot of food. We're we're taking care of a lot of our, we do our, a lot of our own stunts is the way my wife puts it. And yeah. the act of learning how to do that was not just for my kids. It was for us too. I would also really love to see, there's a lot of people on our Facebook page who are really passionately wanting to start a classical school. And if they need to know who to get in touch with to start a classical school that has gardening and nature study and farming, I know three schools that are doing it and they're doing it well. Um, I think I'd like to see more and more schools pop up that take this very seriously and, and, and they actually do learn how to care for goats that are on the uh, school property, um, how to care for chickens that are on the school property. Um, I think this is an important model and I'd love to see more and more um, people who want to build a classical school build one yeah. like this so that it is balanced in the so learning. This might be a good opportunity as we as we move towards the end of our conversation here to maybe shift back into the philosophical um, because we need to have we need to have a philosophy and some guiding principles uh, in place if we're going to educate in this way and run our homes in this way. And uh, Adrian and I just recently had a wonderful conversation with Dr. Lou Marcos all about uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, The Abolition yes. of Man. And in that <laughs> yes. book, Lewis dreams of uh, what he calls a new natural philosophy. And I wonder if you could remind us of what Lewis is talking about here. And this will probably give you an opportunity to talk about one of your more recent projects, uh, a book that you contributed to uh, that, that, that talks about this very, this very thing. Yes. Um, now, I would, I would highly recommend, I'll, I'll lead off with this. If you have not read The Abolition of Man, Talk about, a, you could not find a more timely book for our moment, um, except perhaps the, the confluence of 1984 and Brave New World. Uh, maybe if you write all three of those together, you get a wonderful mm. little discussion chunk on our time. But that third chapter of, um, of Abolition of Man in particular talks about the magician's bargain, essentially what we would call that, where uh, we're looking at the way we used to do science uh, and the way that we do it now. Back in the day, science was called natural philosophy. 
it, when you look at those terms, natural, it looked into the natural world and philosophy, a love of wisdom. It was looking into the natural world to find the orders, to find, and the, even the Greek term cosmos, we say, oh, the universe today, but I kind of laugh because uh, Carl Sagan had this wonderful series I grew up on called Cosmos. Cosmos is the container of the universe and all the orders implied in it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, Sagan was kind of an atheistic figure where <laughs> he had a lot, but he chose Cosmos as the name of his show. I was like, what? Mm -hmm. now, mm -hmm. now that I know. But this notion of cosmos is an interesting one because it implies the order. The natural philosophers were looking at the cosmos. They were looking at the container, the nature of reality, but what drove it to conform themselves to the minds of the gods because they knew that the gods had the higher orders. And then you have the modern scientist who comes along and says, well, the solution to this, we're going to wrest power from nature for our technologies, right? We are going to assume the power. And in, in the process of doing this, we're going to do some things that, as in Lewis's words, were previously considered impious, right? The solution is a method, and the way that we're going to go about this is, is impious, if, if not disgusting, right, the, the things that are done. And C.S. Lewis, by the way, if you prefer fiction, uh, don't read The Abolition of Man. Go and get yourself a copy of That Hideous Strength. He took The Abolition of Man, third chapter, and turned it into the third novel of his space trilogy. If you enjoy that a little bit better, go ahead. Just don't be confused when there's a bear in the kitchen. Right, we'll talk about the book. But the, the notion here is that in the old days, the way that we did our study of the cosmos, natural philosophy was looking for wisdom. Today, we're seeking power. And if you go to uh, Bacon's Novum Organum in the third, the third book, he essentially says, this is where we get the phrase, human knowledge and human power are as one. And that's where we get the phrase, knowledge is power. And if you think about it, we've been living under that kind of regime. Knowledge is power. Uh, not just dominion, dominion, like we, I give you dominion over the birds and beasts and the earth. That's different than giving us power over that. The dominion implies good rulership and orderly rulership, right? Dominus. But in this case, power is we, we want what we want. We're going to take it. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be doing things that are, that are not perhaps ethical to do this. They're, and science, by the way, cannot make a morality. Science rules upon things that are physical, material, uh, but it, it has no morality. It's amoral, not immoral, but a. It, it cannot, unless you as the scientist come to it with a moral structure, you're going to practice it without boundary because there is none implied. So Lewis's third chapter of, of Abolition of Man leaves us off at our current moment mm -hmm. where we're looking at um, how to not only interact with the world, but how do we do it in a way that is, that's, that's humble, uh, that is rightly ordered or is our order is our ordo amoris in tune with what god would want us to do in the world um we can uh use a to, to to very simplify this we can use a knife to to uh make food we can use it to perform surgery but we can also stab someone with it right what's our rightly ordered use of this tool of the intellect that we've been given and that's where uh robbie jane and robbie andreessen and i have been talking about this for oh, more than a decade Robbie really started it. <laughs> Robbie started it. Uh, about a decade ago, I met Robbie up, uh, well, down in Charleston, South Carolina at an SCL conference about 2012 now, 20, 2012, 2011, I forget. Uh, and we hit it off. And as we talked through the years, we discovered that we were starting to do things very much the same way because both of us held a certain set of principles about the nature of science instruction for children today that weren't just about technique. It wasn't just about facts. It wasn't just about figures or even doing labs that had foregone conclusions. Today, we are going to test Newton's third law. What's Newton's third law? Okay, now go spend 50 minutes doing Newton's third law and tell me Newton's third law back. No, let's go discover it. Let's get our hands on things that will allow us to see this, observe it, and then say, well, what do we see? 
you hear how that be, that observation becomes the beginning of philosophy. We look into the cosmos to see what's going on, and then we can order our understandings and our observations based upon what we know to be true with a capital T, mm -hmm. not just a fact, but truth. And uh, that right there had us going down a road where Ravi wrote a, a lion's share of that book, and bless him for it, he's a far better writer than I, about the philosophy, how to reclaim natural philosophy as something that must be, it must be the instruction for this interdisciplinary. It can't just be science. It's got to include other disciplines and not just math either, but the humanities have mm -hmm. to make their way into science, the arts of language, as well as the arts of mathematics. It has to be incarnational. It has to be something kids can get their hands on, observe, use their senses on. Um, it, it, and it also, it, it must be situated in such a way that the narrative of this is going on all the way through. We can't just devolve ourselves to the method of science and say, that's it. That's good science. Go forth, kids. We have to say, you know, this method is couched within realities of our, our being, and we need to understand that as embodied creatures with limitations of worldview, embodiment, and epistemology, how we know, we need to be humble. Um, and I wrote a chapter in that book on uh, the common arts and how the common arts lead us in the directions in a science classroom towards natural philosophy. They root us right back to wood, leather, metal, and other, other materials, and not just building Lego robots, which I love, by the way. But assembly is not craft. It's You don't encounter raw materials with grains that you can work one way but not another. Um, and we don't tell a computer to do something for us. We have to do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's the difference between making something and 3D printing it. Um, there are implications uh, to those that must be dug into if, if our schools are going to take on that kind of STEM education. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, of course, Robbie Andreessen comes at this from biology. As a biology teacher, he says we we can't just teach biology as natural science, uh, because then it's deconstructive. Um, the modern scientist, the modern biologist starts with the cell and moves to the larger organism. Well, what if we started with the larger organism that's working in the world, we observe it, and we move our way down to the cell as the foundational block to support the whole thing, the whole gestalt, the whole purpose, the telos of that organism within the world. And it's like, oh my gosh, just turning biology instruction on its head that way changes, to riff back to, to Lewis, how we view the world. Is this all about taking control, or is this about understanding the orders and conforming ourselves to them? Uh, one last story on this, and then, and then I'll, I'll hold for a second. My son in seventh grade, I picked him up at the end of school one day. This is when we were still in brick and mortar, right before we went on our homeschooling adventures. I said, how, how are things in school today? He said, we did a dissection, right, biology class. And I said, really? He said, yeah, we dissected four things. And in my head, I did a quick calculation. You had a 50-minute bio class. I know at least 10 minutes was set up. So you had 10 minutes with each of these trays. And I said, well, how did it go? And he said, well, we, we spent a few minutes at each of the trays. We dissected it. We went on to the next thing. And I said, well, what, were, what did you read ahead of time? Well, nothing. We had a diagram. We had to find certain things. I said, did you ever see any of those organisms alive? That frog, that earthworm? Those... Did you get to observe them? No. They were just dead things on a tray. We walked into the room, we cut them up, and we left. Hmm. And if you look, that's actually a scene, essentially, out of that hideous strength. And I was like, dear Lord, we shouldn't do biology this way. If we're going to recover natural philosophy, we cannot teach that way, and nor should we learn that way. There are new ways of going about this that are actually old. And those people, those ancients, had an, an understanding of this we have missed. Uh, and this is very much, by the way, those of you who've read Jamie Smith's How Not to Be Secular, uh, which is a summary of Charles Taylor's, uh, right? <laughs> this is an interesting one because 
the first point that he makes, both both Smith and, and Taylor about this, about how do we go from a time in history when it was inconceivable to think there wasn't a God to the inverse today, where it's inconceivable to think that there is for the common imagination. And the first thing is to disenchant the world. When you take the enchantment out of the world and you make it just mere matter, you're naturally going to do that. <laughs> so if we if we just treat our dissection subjects as things to be taken apart, right, or we've never seen them alive, that's the way we're going to think about these things, and we're going to create horrible technologies for it. But if we come at it another way, perhaps there's hope. Yeah, you're right. You're spot on. Everything you're saying is also Charlotte Mason. We're back to her always. <laughs> yes, I know. You know, Marie, let me let me say this too. I am a huge fan of Charlotte Mason, and I continue to digest her work. I would say uh, I'm a I'm a Charlotte Mason brown belt. I'm not yet a Charlotte Mason black belt. I've done enough study to go through the white belt and the green belt phases with Charlotte Mason, and I'm tinkering with her knowledge. I find myself uh, to be um, I, I love what she has to say, and I find myself to be very much a Masonist. But I, I'm also a little more paleo, perhaps, in my, uh, my approach to it than Mason. And maybe that's a conversation for another time, perhaps. And maybe, too, um, may, maybe too uh, little less, a little less Victorian, perhaps. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm more caveman around it. And, uh, but her, her entire notion of nature study and getting out there and seeing things and her notion of getting her hands on it, the pace of the way she learns, I, I'm all over it. I, 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 I found a kindred spirit in Mason. Very yeah, much so. Definitely. Trey, you still there? Yeah, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just listening <laughs> and enjoying. Um, well, we, we, we certainly are grateful to have had you uh, a part of this conversation, and uh, hopefully, we can just say to be continued because there's, there's much more mm -hmm. that we could explore together. And um, I am, uh, I'm just into. Uh, the 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 first uh, few chapters of of that new book. Tell everyone the 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 title of the new book and 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 where would be a good place for them to pick it up. New Natural Philosophy is the name of the book, and um, Classical Academic Press. Uh, Classical Academic Press is the main source for that one right now. Right. And are you doing? Um, I seem to recall you uh, talking about uh, recording some some lessons for 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 Cap and and do you have any other upcoming? things that people should uh, stay tuned for? Yes, I have a number of them. Um, right now, Cap, uh, Classical U and I are in the, in the thralls, really, of uh, making a four-season documentary here on my homestead about the common arts. I have a film crew coming once a season, uh, winter, spring, summer, and fall, to film things that are going on here, practicing the common arts in situ. Uh, it's everything from our gardening to interviews over craft, uh, the philosophy behind all these. I just had a, a young girl out here, 15-year-old apprenticeship in haunt, hawk hunting. I went on a hawk hunt last weekend and filmed this. Uh, and again, these are just common arts. And listening to this girl talk about it, uh, it it's, she understands the bird and the bird understands her. And this is the common right. art of armament and hunting. It's a beautiful thing. Right. And you can hear the liberal arts just smattered throughout everything from, from in and in. So Classical U, um, that one is uh, roughly due for release the end of next winter. Uh, after we get all the filming done. But um, I also have some projects coming up. Um, uh, Scolay Academy, uh, through Classical Academic Press, Scolay Academy has opened up some classes in the common arts for middle schoolers and young high schoolers. If anyone is out there going, oh my gosh, you know, we want to get in on a class of this, it's it's there. Uh, it's available. It's the first common arts online uh, class out there. And uh, that's going to open up this coming fall some, by semester, uh, semester piece. And um, I'm also producing uh, through my, I, through my own work here, alwayslearningeducation.net, 
um, a variety of resources, parent apprenticeships for those who want to bring the common arts into their home or into their school. This is for teachers as well. Um, and some, some booklets. Um, I'll be publishing some pamphlets in the fall so that if people want some homeschool plug-and-play type resources, they can pick these up and just go to town. Um, I'm writing parents' guides as well to go alongside with the students' guides. So no shortage of projects in the works, Trey. Maybe, <laughs> maybe that's the best way to put it. And spring yeah. planning starts in three weeks. So uh, yeah. it's good timing. Well, thank you. Thank you for your good work. And we want to continue to support that in any way that we can. Uh, as a way of uh, ending our conversation here, uh, we have a habit of asking our, our guests uh, if they could share with us one of two things, and I'll let you pick. Uh, do you perhaps have a quote from a book that has had a, a big impact on you that, that you would like to share with us? Or, uh, or do you have, uh, have a book uh, recommendation, uh, something that you've read uh, in years past that, uh, that you would encourage uh, people to pick up today? And it doesn't necessarily have to be related to uh, the conversation we've had here, uh, just anything that is on your reading list, so to speak. My gosh. Um, here, I will grab one literally from my bedside table. I'm looking at it right now. It's a copy of Silmarillion. Many of us are looking into Tolkien, The Hobbit, right? The Lord of the Rings, the, the Two Towers, and The Return of the King, this major opus there. I, I'm reading the Silmarillion for the second time ever. And it, I love books. I circle back to them all the time. Um, and this one I'm seeing for the second time. It's a collection of stories, uh, the, the backstory, if you will, of Middle Earth and how things got to be before The Hobbit, uh, before the Third Age. And it's funny you, you mentioned this, Trey, because as I'm looking in here, we can see the magician's bargain in the character of Fionor. Here we have this, this, this elf who crafts these beautiful things, these, these gems, the Silmarils, that end up becoming objects of envy, objects of destruction. And it's like, wow, right here in this book, Tolkien grasped this. And in fact, I won't go too deep in this, but if you look at the difference between the way that the orcs the dwarves, the men, and the elves craft, you have a perfect understanding of the common arts. Mm. All utility versus beauty and, and order in, the, in creation, right, at the other end. And the dwarves and men are kind of figuring their way in between, and they gravitate either side. But I was reading this on the Silmarils last night and thinking, this is it. This is a story for our times, as much as it was for the ancient days of Middle Earth. So uh, if you've never picked up a copy of the Silmarillion, be prepared for some beautiful little dramas back and forth as we go. I love it. Chris Hall, thank you. Thank you so much. This was great. We, we, we'd <laughs> My pleasure. Love to have you back on and dive deeper into some of these things. This is great. Certainly. It'd be my pleasure. God bless everybody. And, and listeners, too, have hope, right? As you're listening to all these things and thinking, my gosh, where, where would be the first steps or I could never do this? Yes, you can. <laughs> Just take one small step at a time and, and look into it and prayerfully lead. It, it's the best thing we can do. God bless everyone. Thank you so much for listening. We invite you to experience the art of teaching through interactive learning communities at our Patreon page. Visit patreon.com forward slash classical education. Also, be sure to join the conversation on our Facebook community at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. We are a listener supported podcast, so your support makes this podcast possible. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once wrote, well, my friends, the final result of the education I want you to give your children will be, in a few words, this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. 
and they will know best of all what it is to behave under it as in the presence of a Father who is in heaven.